I won't deny it. I'm a straight rider. You don't want to fuck with me. Got the police busting at me. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something Pepper and Heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Hey, y'all. It's Greg Kading from Unsolved and Murder Rap. Looking forward to chopping it up with Ben on his YouTube channel, Real Talk, and getting into the facts and the fiction of uh, Biggie and Tupac coming up on their 25-year death anniversaries. And so we'll get into what's real and what's not. So looking forward to it. Hope to see you all there. Peace. Everybody, my name's Ben Robbins. I'm from the Lost World of Movie Props, and I am here today with retired LAPD homicide detective Greg Cadding. Is that correct? Is it Cadding? It's close enough. It's Cadin. Yeah. Cadin. There we go. Yeah, I know who I am, so it's, you can pronounce it either way. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, should we just jump straight into it? Yeah, for sure. Let's just jump yeah. on into it. It's good seeing you, Ben. Yeah, it's nice to see you as well. How you been? Everything's been great. I just got done working in Alabama, so last night was my first night home, and I can't remember the last time I slept in my own bed, and it just felt so great. So um, that's, sometimes it's just so nice to be at home with nothing to do. Oh yeah, it's, it's amazing when you just if you've been on the road a lot, you can just sleep in your own bed and just yep. switch off. Yep, it's it's great. My wife's out of town, so I have the whole house to myself. And uh, <laughs> even my even my dog is doing a sleepover somewhere. So this is <laughs> this is my even sanctuary. <laughs> All right, so yes, yeah, so, um, let's so should we look right back at the start of your career. Um, did you always want to be a police officer, or was that something you fell into, or was it? Yeah, no, I, it was not at all. Um, you know, I was when I was really young, I wanted to be a professional football player, um, but oh. I wasn't really that. Yeah, I wanted to be with the Los Angeles Rams. And uh, but that was during my really you know young years. And I wasn't really that great of an athlete. So I realized, you know, after playing Pop Warner football and uh, high school football that, you know, football was probably not going to be in my future. And I also I always wanted to be in a I wanted to play guitar in a band. Hmm. Um, but I just didn't have the discipline to learn how to play the darn thing. I had guitars and songbooks and all this stuff that it was, you know, you have to spend a lot of time investing in that. And I just didn't have the discipline. So um, I would just have odd jobs throughout my teenage years. And um, I had a really, really close friend of mine whose dad was a cop. And I ended up living with their family. And the dad kind of mentored me along because I was getting into a little bit of trouble and um, you know, he was like, Greg, if, you know, if, if you don't find something to do with your time, that's productive and start build, working towards a, a career of some time, because, you know, you, you can, you know, you can apply for the police department you haven't screwed up so bad right now that, uh, they disqualify you. So he kind of, you know, kind of guided me towards that. And once I applied and got accepted and went through the academy, I was like, hey, this is fun. This is great. So that's how I got started. But it was never a lifelong dream. Yeah. So what were your main what sort of roles to begin with as a police officer? So I went through the academy. And then after getting out of the academy, I worked in the jails. Uh, I worked in a maximum security jail for a little over two years, two and a half years. And then I really wanted to go and work in Los Angeles. And so I applied for the Los Angeles Police Department and got accepted. I had to go through their academy. So now I'm going through a second academy, a second round of training, mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately ended up being assigned to a patrol division called Newton Division. It's in South Central Los Angeles. It's a really busy gang-infested, drug-infested you know, area to work. So I got my, you know, 
immediately jumped into this environment that was very foreign to me. And, yeah. uh, and I just loved it. I loved the challenge of it. I was fascinated with gangs. And um, so that was kind of, that was the beginning of my career. And, yeah. you know, I had great training officers and really great officers around me that kind of helped me to become a, uh, you know, a, a, a good hardworking cop. Yeah. So what kind of gangs did you have to deal with? Because obviously in the UK, gangs over here are so different to America. Mm. Yeah. So, of course, we've all heard of Crips and Bloods, uh, but there was also a, a, a large um, um a large degree of Hispanic gangs. Yeah. So, you know, this was back in the eighties. So you had the beginning of like the MS 13 and their transnational integration into, you know, the United States from El Salvador. And uh, so we, you know, Crips and Bloods and Hispanic gangs, there wasn't in the area I worked any, any white gangs or Asian gangs. Is it just the, the community or the uh, population where I work was all, predominantly black and Hispanic. Mm. So what, um, what kind of crimes did you witness, obviously, seeing the two gangs fight? Was it mainly the Cribs and Bloods? Was it lots of shoot-ups or was it more drug dealing? What kind of crimes were you it, dealing with? It was all those things. I mean, they would have beefs over girls. They would have beefs over territory. They'd have beefs over uh, just, uh, you know, back and forth rivalry shootings. Um, you know, you, I actually witnessed drive-by shootings. Mm. Um, there was, you, you, whatever, there would be infighting, like a gang would, would have, you know, violence within itself. So yeah. you take a particular gang and there might be a, a, a competition between who's going to lead the gang and that could lead to fractions and, you know, in, uh, conflict. So you, anything that could take place would happen within the gang world. Mm. So moving forward with your career, when did you start to move up away from obviously being directly on the streets and start moving up through the ranks? So the first year or so, I was just a patrol officer, you know, just out there answering radio calls. And then I got into um, a specialized unit. Ultimately, we had a back then we had a anti-gang unit called Crash. And yeah. I, so I got into the Crash unit and we were just a gang suppression unit. And every division in the city basically had their own crash unit and we would just be tasked with going out identifying gang members monitoring gang activity doing gang investigations and that's when I became really immersed in that culture and in that world and of mm -hmm. course when you're dealing with gangs you're also typically dealing with narcotics so I began to build my expertise about narcotic trafficking and narcotic sales and uh, <clears throat> and then those two things I did for about the first 10 years and then I became a detective and started to get into actual, I was out of uniform and began to work on various task forces and ultimately got into the homicide investigations. Okay. So was, did you get to do a lot of homicide investigations? Yeah. Primarily they're all cold case investigations, mm -hmm. but I did, I got to work around a bunch of really, really great homicide investigators and learn kind of the tricks of the trade. And uh, then I began to, you know, handle my own investigations. Um, and that led to me being assigned to what we call robbery homicide division, which is our centralized um, homicide division downtown. And we handle most of the high profile and uh, more complicated 
murders that were that were going to require a lot of resources. Yeah. So uh, what's what's a cold case really? So how does that what's a cold case for us? A cold case is typically a case where um, most of the leads have all been exhausted. You know, the cops have done everything that they practically can in order to try to solve it, but just haven't been able to solve it. So yeah. that's when case case loses its momentum and you get to a point where you just don't really have much you can do with it. Um, and so it it's becomes cold. And yeah. uh, that's just the terminology we use. It's usually a cold case is a case that's not being actively investigated. Yeah. So is that what happened with the, the Biggie Smalls case? Was that, that was the first case that landed on your desk. Like how were you assigned that? And what was your first impressions of that case? Well, it's, well, I got assigned it because I had this combination of investigative experience with gangs. And we knew that there was probably going to be gang involvement because we knew that both, you know, Bad Boy was affiliating himself with gangs. Um, Death Row was affiliated with gangs. We knew that there was conflict between those two groups. Tupac Shakur had been killed and uh, suspected that was gang related. And so with my um, background in cold case homicide investigations, narcotics, and then gangs, I was kind of a natural uh, fit. Um, so when they were looking to recruit people to reinvestigate Biggie's cold case, I was one of the people selected. And then we built this whole team around that. We built a whole team of investigators from different agencies in order to try to solve Christopher's murder, Biggie's murder. Yeah. So did you get to, did you get to pick everyone individually for your team or were you just allocated people? Um, originally, I was just part of a, a core group of about five people. And then I, I suggested to the guy, you know, one of the other, two of the other investigators were senior to me. And I said, here's what I think we should do. I think that we should probably broaden these, the size of this team, but get subject matter experts in all these different areas. Let's get guys that worked Compton PD back at the time when Biggie and Tupac were murdered. So we recruited guys from Compton. I said, hey, you know, let's get the federal agency involved so that we can use their resources and also have the credentials of a federal investigation let's get a, a, a you know somebody who knows hip-hop in black street culture mm. so we we took all these different elements saying the best team we can assemble who everyone has a different expertise and perspective and i thought that would be our best chance of solving it is is a shared approach with different people who have different ideas about things yeah so can, can you tell us how christopher was murdered that night yeah, it's really simple. Um, it was a it was a contract basically put out by Suge Knight. Suge Knight was in jail at the time because he was incarcerated after his involvement in a um, gang beatdown of a guy named Orlando Anderson in Las Vegas six months before Biggie was killed. Tupac had been shot. The night that Tupac was shot, just prior to that, Tupac and Suge Knight and other members of the Death Row entourage had gotten into a fight at the MGM casino um, with a guy named Orlando Anderson. Sorry about that. That's all right. It's fine. Dead in that. And um, so after this fight, Suge Knight was captured on videotape kicking and assaulting Orlando Anderson. And so his, his uh, probation officer violated him for being involved in a crime while he's on probation. And so now Suge goes to jail. Now, Suge is pissed, obviously. He's hurt that deeply because he's lost Tupac. 
he can't believe that you know he's been assaulted himself and that he's you know been attacked the way that they yeah. were after after the the beatdown. So he just takes it upon himself to retaliate, and he hires a guy from his from a gang that he's affiliated with, and uh, asks him to do the killing. So that individual uh, took the uh, agreed to do it. So he lied in wait outside of the Peterson Auto Museum, knowing that Biggie was there and just waited for the opportunity to drive by and, and shoot into the vehicle that Biggie was in and struck Biggie several times. And Biggie ultimately died on, you know, pretty much right there at the scene, but they transported him to the hospital and he was dead on arrival. Yeah. So when you first started, oh, sorry. Uh, when, when you first started looking at, um, obviously, Christopher's murder, when you started looking through, obviously you had loads of, loads of files to go through. Um, was there anyone that initially stood out to you well, there were loads of files. I mean, it took us weeks, if not months, to completely wrap our head around all of the previous investigative material. There was a lot of different ideas out there and speculation about who could have done it and why they would have done it. And we needed to entertain all of those possibilities. But really, there was just three main theories. One of the theories was that the Southside Crips had done it, those same individuals that had killed Tupac. Um, over some uncollected money that Bad Boy owed him. That was one theory. The other theory is that Suge Knight used gang members from his own gang, which ultimately turned out to be true. And then the third theory is that there was um, rogue LAPD cops that Suge Knight had contracted to do the killing. So those were the three main theories that had some degree of support for them. Yeah. There was a lot of really crazy outlandish theories, you know, so um, those we could kind of just quickly dismiss but those were the three main working theories that we that we dove into yeah so because um, obviously I've, I've looked up stuff myself and obviously like, some people said like was it the islamic state group were involved with christopher's murder is there any truth to that or how did that theory come about as an organization i don't believe that the nation of islam um had anything to do with it as an organization there may have been somebody who's affiliated with the Nation of Islam who could have passively been involved. We don't think he was the shooter, but he could have been acting as a lookout. Yeah. We don't know. We, we have good information to connect some dots, but not enough to go out there and publicly say that we believe that we know this to be true. Because it would be, you know, to without more evidence, it would be tantamount to falsely accusing somebody. Yeah. And we just don't want to do that. Other people have gone out there and made a bunch of false accusations against demonstrably innocent people. And it's just a very reckless and irresponsible thing to do. Um, so there may be a little bit of a connection with a, um, a Nation of Islam member, but not acting on behalf of the Nation of Islam. He just oh, happened okay. to be, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So there's that possibility, but the shooter has been identified as a gang member named Wardell Faust, and he was a close friend of Suge's. He was a very, very dangerous homicidal gang member that was suspected of other murders, and we have good evidence to believe that he was the actual shooter. Yeah. Did you ever get to meet him at all? No, he died of a unrelated gang action in 2002. He was riding his motorcycle uh, up the street in Compton and uh, some uh, an assailant came by in a vehicle and shot him 10 times in the back and killed him on the streets. So he died basically the same way in which he killed Biggie as it was a drive-by shooting. 
Oh, blimey. So, yeah, so you'd never got an opportunity to interrogate him or talk to him or speak to him then? No, um, not that it would have mattered because, of course, you know, these guys that do these murders, it's not like they're going to sit down and confess to them. I mean, look at the guy who shot Tupac. I mean, it's very clear that Orlando Anderson was the, um, the, the shooter of Tupac Shakur. And of course, when they interview him, he wants to get a lawyer. He won't admit to anything, even though he's bragging about it to everybody in his neighborhood. Mm. You know, he's, he's not going to confess to that murder, obviously, um, nor would Pucci have. So we have to build independent outside evidence to try to prove those, those claims. So the, the theory with the, the, the policeman involvement of the killing, how were they involved with the killing? I mean, were they obviously working for uh, the, the police as well as Suge Knight, or was it they were just off of money? No, that's a false narrative. Now, that, that narrative was something that was originally proposed by a detective named Russell Poole. Russell Poole formulated this theory that some LAPD officers were involved with, uh, with death row records and that they then carried the head out for Suge Knight. There's no real support for that theory. There's just what we call circumstance, circumstantial information, speculation, and innuendo. That theory has been completely disproven. An incredible amount of investigative work has gone into pursuing that theory to see if it's true. You know, different agencies, different times have all looked into that. And there's no viable connection whatsoever to um, uh, that. Let me back up and just say this, because I think I need to preface this thing. Suge Knight's death row records had a head of security named Reggie Wright Jr. Yeah. Reggie Wright Jr. was an ex-Compton cop. He had a medical retirement, and then Suge asked him to take over the security at death row records. Now, Reggie Wright Jr., being an ex-cop, said, okay, I will do that. Let me hire other off-duty cops to come and provide security, which he would do. You would get guys from all kinds of different agencies, San Bernardino, Inglewood. Um, he had one guy named Richard McCauley who was from LAPD, all these just different guys. So there was a group of off-duty cops that worked security for death row. So that's true. We don't deny yeah. that. That was, that was exhaustively looked into um, by all the different agencies that had officers that were moonlighting at death row. So all that investigation would be done. But there's no connection whatsoever between any of those officers and the murder. Mm. Right. So, you know, when you really look at this thing and you understand the mindset of the streets, you understand the mindset of a guy like Suge Knight. You know, he. He's gang affiliated. And he knows if he needs something like this done, who do you go to? Who's the person that you go to? Do you go to a gangster on the street who does this kind of thing? as part of his lifestyle, somebody you can really trust, or the cops that work for your security agency that you, that you can't, that you don't really have a, you know, a working relationship with. And, and Suge Knight only used cops, Reggie Wright Jr. only used cops because they were legitimate in these situations where um, death row was out there conducting itself with illegal activity. And then this would provide them some layer of kind of um, protection um, mm. by cops that would be there with their badges saying, hey, you know, we've got this, we're looking after this. The cops are all turning blind eyes to criminal activity. But long story short, after an, an extremely exhaustive investigation, there is no connection whatsoever to Biggie's murder. 
and any of these cops that were identified working for death row records. Yeah. So working on such a big case, I mean, how much pressure was put on you to obviously resolve and obviously come to the end of this cold case? Most of the pressure is pressure that you put on yourself, you know, because you want to, you want to solve the case. You want to figure out what happened. You want to bring the right people to justice. So much of the pressure is just self-imposed pressure because you're challenging yourself and you don't want to come up empty after all this time and effort that you've put into it. So and that yeah. was the mindset of our entire task force. Like we put the pressure on ourselves. Outside, we knew that there was other pressure, external pressure, just because the city was facing a huge lawsuit. And, uh, um, you know, we, we didn't, all we wanted to do was get to the truth. It wouldn't have mattered to us who the shooters were, as long as we get the right people. It doesn't yeah. matter to us they're cops, it doesn't matter to us if they're crooks, or gangsters, whatever. We just want to get the right people and then let the chips fall where they may. Um, but there's these conspiracy theorists out there that continue to propagate this false narrative about the LAPD being involved in this massive cover-up and that these cops that, you know, that were uh, um, identified through hearsay witnesses, it's all just a narrative that's being pursued by either ignorant people, um, uninformed people, let me just use that word instead of ignorant, uninformed people, or people that are actually driving that false narrative for the profitability of it, mm. to keep this alive so they can sell books and DVDs and movies. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's intellectual dishonesty uh, to a massive degree, because they're only going to cherry pick the information to support this narrative. The public doesn't know all the information, so therefore the public is in a position to be gullible and convinced this is true because they don't know what questions to ask or what information actually refutes those claims. And so that's, that's why we stay busy and active, continually, you know, refuting and dismissing these claims that are being put out there that are misleading everybody and continuing to victimize Miss Wallace, by the way, yeah. because now her head is just full of, it's just swimming in confusion. She doesn't know who to believe, who to trust. She's hearing all this different you know, information from different sources. And it's very, very reckless and irresponsible. And uh, those that those people that are propagating this false narrative should somehow be held accountable, at least by the public, you know, they should be uh, tarred and feathered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, did you ever get to sit down with Christopher's mom and, and tell her what your findings were for her son? Yeah, absolutely. Just prior to publishing my book, I went out and met with her, explained to her what our task force had, had uh, um, the information that during our investigation that had been revealed and all the information that we developed. So we went and talked to her. I went and talked to her. And, uh, you know, I think she was like, man, frustrated, A, because she had just spent years and a whole bunch of money pursuing a false narrative which ultimately had to be dismissed because there was no foundation to this, this claim. And, okay. and it, hmm? I said, I said, yeah. okay. Like, yeah. 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 So it, it had to be really, really frustrating for her. Uh, she was continually convinced that lies were true. And so um, we sat down, I developed a rapport with her. I stayed in touch with her for years. Now my old partner, my old, homicide partner, Darren Dupree, you know, he maintains that liaison with her um, and keeping her informed of what's going on. I think he's developed a really good rapport with her. 
Yeah. But quite honestly, I don't know if she knows what to believe. She's got so many people telling her different things. Um, I, I just don't think she knows what to believe. No. I mean, what, what kind of things were people telling her? Like? Well, they essentially that pursuing this idea that there was a guy named David Mack, an LAPD officer named David Mack, saying that he was involved in the murder and that he hired this Nation of Islam hitman named Harry Billups, Amir yeah. Mohammed, his Muslim name. That is the thing that spawned the lawsuit. But as the lawsuit continued to work its way through the courts, all of the witnesses just continually were refuted and, 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 and impeached. Mm. And so in time, they realized their lawsuit just kept falling apart and falling apart. And they kept reinventing it, reinventing it, and fall apart, and fall apart, reinventing it. And they just could never get the kind of traction that they were hoping to get. And you got to keep in mind, for Valada Wallace, she just wants somebody held accountable. Right. Yeah. Valetta Wallace just wants whoever did this, I want to be held accountable. The people around her are less interested in the truth than they are the big pockets that a city like Los Angeles has. This is what drives attorneys. Attorneys aren't interested in the justice and the truth. The attorneys are interested in can we make a good enough case to get a whole bunch of money? Yeah, and that's what they pursue. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes those worlds collide because they have to really twist and manufacture and misrepresent facts in order to keep driving that effort towards getting a huge settlement. Well, the LAPD knew right away, we're like, we ain't settling for a dime. We're not going to give you a nickel because we know these are all false allegations. We know this is all built on misinformation and innuendo and lie. And your witnesses are a bunch of, you know, impeachable people. And so the LAPD was like, or the city of Los Angeles, we're, we'll never, never settle this. We'll fight no. tooth and nail and go to the very end. Well, once those attorneys on the Valletta Wallace side of the equation are like, we're spinning our wheels here. We're never going to win this thing. We're just going to continue to spend money, throwing good money after bad. And uh, that's when they, they eventually just retracted the lawsuit and said, you know, we're no longer pursuing it. Yeah. So uh, at what point investigating Biggie's, the, um, Christopher's case, did Tupac start to come into play and start to, uh, and you started to notice similar, similar um, obviously murders, but obviously the difference between them and how did that all work out? Yeah, the surrounding circumstances of the murders themselves are very similar. They're both drive-by shootings. They're both being committed by gang members that were affiliated with those, you know, respective gangs. So those, they're very similar in that sense. Um, with Tupac's murder, it was a little bit more clear cut from the beginning because we knew that he had gotten into a fight with a gang member earlier that night named Orlando Anderson. We had a lot of supporting evidence that not only was Orlando, but other members of his gang were in Las Vegas that night. And so he had the motive and he had the means. And if you knew Orlando Anderson, he was not going to let a bunch of people stomp him down without retaliating. Yeah. So that crime, Tupac's murder, was pretty kind of evident from the beginning. Um, didn't have enough strong enough evidence and actually to take it to court, but common sense would tell you this is the most likely scenario is that the guy that Tupac got into a fight with just came back and shot him, right? And uh, you know, the old saying, Occam's razor, the simplest truth is typically the, you know, the, the, yeah. the simplest explanation is typically the truth. Um, so we were, but we always thought that these have to be connected. They're six months apart. 
there's got to be some connection between these things. It was just kind of your instinctive mindset that there's got to be a common denominator here. So when we went to in, investigate Biggie's murder and we, and we were entertaining the theory of these South Side Crips being involved because we knew that they were there the night that Biggie was killed at the Peterson Auto Museum. And so we wrangle up this guy named Keefe D who was a shock caller for the South Side Crips. And we sit him down and we sit him down under very specific and compelling circumstances where he, it's, in, it's in his best interest at this point to tell us the truth because he's yeah. looking at prison. He's looking at life in prison. So we sit down with his attorney and the U.S. attorney and the FBI and the LAPD and we grill him. And he says, listen, I can't tell you anything about Christopher's murder. Yeah, I saw him that night, but that wasn't us. However, I can tell you about Tupac's murder because that was us. And so he then goes to divulge all the information about how he got the gun, who was in the car, why his nephew killed Tupac and shot him, and all the things that they did surrounding that murder. So now we have a guy who was directly involved who's confessing to that murder. So that's how we kind of connected it is because we are looking at these, at these guys as possible assailants in Biggie's murder, and they turn out to be the actual assailants in Tupac's murder, which is what, what which was the truth that we always suspected yeah we always kind of thought these guys were involved so so when he confessed and told you about the two-part murder like what was his actual story of how they killed him so they were out there to simply watch the mike tyson fight this was a very popular thing to do was gangs from los angeles and surrounding areas would go to las vegas to watch these professional boxing matches but even more so when it was mike tyson they're all a fan of Mike Tyson. Yeah. Mike Tyson um, uh, and Puffy Combs had a friend of theirs. His name was Eric Williams or Equan Williams. He had a couple of aliases. He was a Harlem drug dealer and his name was Zip. He was out there also. And he was very close friends with Keefe D. Keefe D from the Southside Crips and Zip were drug, um, they, have, uh, they were um, drug dealers together. Yeah. Keefe D supplied zip with his cocaine and PCP. So these guys are out there watching the fight. And then Tupac Shakur is wandering across the lobby of the MGM. He sees Orlando Anderson. And the guy that Tupac's with is a guy named Trayvon Lane, who's a mob pyro gangster who's affiliated with Death Row Records. He looks over at Orlando and he tells Tupac, yo, there's that motherfucker that stole my chain from me recently. Oh, okay. Right? So Tupac takes it. A, a, Tupac takes it. Um, he takes it upon himself. All right, man, that dude right there. Yeah, and he runs over and he sucker punches Orlando, and then the rest of them stomp Orlando down. So Tupac's now put himself in the middle of this gang conflict. And so what ends up happening is Orlando Anderson goes and finds Keefe D, who's with some other members of their gang. He says, yo, man, Tupac just fucking went off on me. Should went off on me. They just kicked my ass. Let's go get him. Well, KPD's like, man, we don't have any hardware out here. We don't have any artillery. So Zip, who's there, says, listen, I got something in the car. Zip and KPD go out to Zip's car. Zip gets a gun out of the vehicle and gives it to KPD. So now they've got a gun. Yeah. Keefe D, Orlando Anderson, a guy named Terrence Brown, and another guy named DeAndre Smith all go and get into a rented Cadillac that Terrence Brown had brought to Las Vegas. Terrence Brown's the driver. Keefe D's sitting in the right front passenger seat. Orlando's in the seat behind the driver. 
I'm sorry, Orlando's in the seat behind the passenger and DeAndre Smith's in the seat behind the driver. And now they go over to where they know Tupac's going to be, which is Shug's nightclub called the 662. Well, they get over there and they start seeing these other bloods there. They see armed Las Vegas Metropolitan Police officers there. Like, this is probably not the best place to try to retaliate <laughs> against, against these guys. So they abort the plan. They're like, okay, forget it. We're not going to do this here. Just so happens as they're leaving, they're going back down the, the, uh, the road and they see Tupac and the whole caravan of death row people on their way to the 662 Club where Tupac's supposed to perform. Mike Tyson's supposed to make an appearance there. It's this big thing. And yeah. the Crips and the Cadillac are like, whoa, those dudes, they're right there, right there. So they whip a U-turn. They see Tupac, who's got the window down. He's been hanging out the window, yelling to some girls. And they see him, and they just pull up alongside. Keefe D hands the gun to his nephew, who's the guy that Tupac beat down, hands him mm -hmm. the gun in the back seat. Orlando Anderson leans out the window and just starts shooting, and he ultimately kills Tupac. So that's how that went down. It was just this simple gang-related retaliation yeah. um, against Tupac for getting himself in the middle of a gang conflict. Well, I mean, obviously, Tupac wasn't obviously a gang member himself. Of course not. No. So um, you said, obviously, it was about a chain. So why did Tupac go and sucker punch a guy over a chain? So, you know, Tupac, if you, if you know anything about Tupac, Tupac is fiercely loyal yeah. to his who's the people in his life, his friends, fiercely loyal to a fault. And so he's now, he's come from the East Coast. He feels betrayed by so many of the people back in his life on the East Coast. He's found somewhat of a family at Death Row Records. Well, that family includes these hardcore gang members that are members of the entourage around Shug, actually employees of Death Row Records. And, and they accept him and he's accepting them and they begin to uh, form a real bond. Yeah. And Tupac feels safe around these guys. And so when this gang member who's standing with Tupac says, hey, man, there's that the Crip blood. I'm sorry, that Crip gang member who stole my chain. Tupac's like loyal. He's like, oh, really? All right. And he goes over and he sucker punches the guy. He puts himself in the middle of something that he had no business being in the middle of. But it yeah. only because Tupac had a temper. He was very volatile and he was very, very loyal. And so that's what got him into that. That basically sealed his fate. So the same sort of question again. Obviously, Tupac talks about his mum a lot. So did you ever get to meet Tupac's mum or any of his family and tell him like your findings for his case? No, not in person. I only talked to his aunt. I think her name is Gloria. I spoke with Gloria and I explained to her what we found out in the case, and she was very, you know, appreciative and and respectful she says you know i appreciate that i uh, uh i've spoken to a feeney about it and basically we really appreciate what you did and what you're doing uh, but you're not telling us anything we didn't already know we've already known that orlando anderson killed tupac it was obvious yeah. from the beginning. so they had all they had already you know come to that conclusion so when our investigation um led to the same conclusion it was not anything you know, earth shattering for them. They were yeah. thankful, but they're like, okay, well, he's dead. So what really can be done about it anyways? Yeah. Well, you sort of, did you basically kind of really confirmed what they sort of already knew really that? 
It did, yeah, confirmed what they already knew. And, and Afini was a bit different than Valletta in the response to losing her son. Afini was much more about remembering Tupac's legacy, remembering Tupac's, um, uh, the impression that he was going to leave upon the world and his music and his poetry and his promise. She was much more focused on that than the death. Yeah. It was a little bit different with Valletta. Valletta is very, very interested in getting justice for her son's murder and, and, and getting people held responsible. Um, of course, she appreciates Biggie's legacy himself, but she is much more focused than Afini was on the justice of it all. Yeah. So obviously, you've obviously got to see a lot of, obviously, Biggie and Tupac. Did you ever really listen to their music and stuff? And what did you think of their music? Um, I'm, I'm not a rap fan. I don't really, it, it's, I grew up on rock and roll, always appreciated rock and roll. So that's the stuff I grew up listening to. Um, a lot of the rap music, especially, you know, at that time was a little bit antisocial insofar as a lot of the lyrics were th just things that I didn't necessarily agree with or appreciate. So I wasn't a rap fan. Yeah. Um, I did develop an appreciation for the music while investigating the murders and getting a better understanding of what was going on in the lyrics and, and what they were trying to say and what they were trying to do. So I built an appreciation for that, um, but I, I, I would still not consider myself a rap fan yeah. to, the, you know, to this day, but I definitely appreciate the talent and, uh, and, and it, it, not only the talent, but the legacy that these guys left behind. Were you surprised at all to see someone like Suge Knight and um, Puffy having such gang affiliation with gangs in America. Was that a surprise at all? Well, it was not a surprise with Suge Knight, not at all. No. Um, <laughs> Suge, Knight, Suge Knight built Death Row on that, you know, impression. You know, that was the whole thing. Death Row was really uh, the idea of, you know, a bunch of people, ex-convicts being around the, the studio the majority of those guys that, that, that Suge was affiliating with had long criminal histories. Some of yeah. them had been convicted of murder. And that was the, you know, that was the image that Suge wanted. And it was selling. It was doing really well, you know, to have an icon of a guy in an electric chair. Mm. And, um, and surrounding yourself with gangs, especially because, the you know, that genre of the music back then, it was on the backs of NWA. Yeah. And this whole kind of, you know, um, kind of, I don't know, I don't want to call it an antisocial message, but Suge was really talented in identifying talent. You know, that was his gift. You could see, and he originally wanted to make sure that these black artists weren't being taken advantage of and exploited by white CEOs and white record labels. And that was his, that was the, the brilliant move he did yeah. was to establish this black based record label. But he always wanted that impression of having a bunch of gangsters around. Puffy wasn't really like that. Puffy was more into a softer side of rap, a softer hip hop side of things. And of course, he had Biggie, who was um, his, his main guy. But Puffy was not a street guy the way Suge was. Yeah. Until it got to the point where Puffy realized that he's in the middle of this street conflict. Right. He's, you know, he's got this real issue with what's happening over with death row and the conflict between bad boy and death row. 
And so then he affiliates himself with this street gang, thinking that they would be the best people to have around when you're having problems with another street gang. Yeah. So that was Puffy's kind of fatal decision is to affiliate himself with people from Los Angeles who understood and lived by different rules. So when um, obviously you got to the end of the cases, when you took it to your superiors and obviously the people that allocated the cases to you, what were, what were their thoughts and feelings and what you had discovered? Um, with, can you repeat that, Ben? So um, when, you, when you finished obviously investigating the cases mm-hmm. and obviously you, you handed them in to be looked mm-hmm. at, like what were your superiors and other colleagues? What did they all think of you obviously investigating two really high profile cases like Big and Tupac? Well, keep in mind, you know, I'm working for the Los Angeles Police Department. Tupac is killed in Las Vegas. So it's kind of a different jurisdiction. The main investigative responsibility for Tupac's murder was Las Vegas Police Department. So we passed all the information that we had discovered along to Las Vegas and let them know. And then with Biggie's case, we had uh, a confessing co-conspirator, somebody who was involved in the murder that directly identified Pucci as the shooter. And we had uh, it was a much smaller conspiracy. It was just Suge, a female, and the shooter. Yeah. And a possibility of another person who was like maybe a lookout guy or, a, you know, we're keeping open the uh, possibility that there could have been a fourth party involved. Um, so we tell the, you know, the management, the LAPD, and uh, say, hey, we've got somebody who's confessing to this murder. Of course, that information is then shared to the attorneys that are, waging this lawsuit against the city we're like hey we've got some you know we've disproven your theory about dirty cops we've actually got a co-conspirator in the murder who's uh, confessing to uh, her the role there and it doesn't involve cops and at that point in time I think that the attorneys for Valletta Wallace said they you know we're wasting our time and energy here let's just call it a day and then of course now we're left with what do we do with what we know so we've got this female who's a baby mama to, to Suge Knight. Poochie's dead. He'd been shot in 2002. We discover all of this in 2009. So we have a female in Suge. That's the only people left that can be prosecuted. The agreement we make with her is that she's going to receive limited immunity for her involvement. We're going to use her as an informant to try, yeah. try to get Suge Knight involved. I'm sorry, to get him to uh, incriminate himself. Um, But the district attorney, and I agree with this, actually, if you were to try to go to court and use this female as the only witness against Suge Knight, you're going to have some real problems prosecuting this because, A, she's one of his children's mothers. B, she's already got an issue with him because she's pissed that he never paid, you know, he's not paying child support. And C, and most important, this is the important thing, is that Prior to all this, she's committed a whole bunch of acts of perjury in this sense. She had multiple identifications under different names. So when you go and get driver's licenses under uh, a false name, you sign a document under penalty of perjury saying, I declare the, 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 you know, the foregoing to be true uh, yeah. under penalty of perjury. So any good defense attorney is going to go, hey, uh, aren't you a liar? No, I'm telling the truth. Well, isn't it true that you've signed all these documents previously saying under penalty of perjury that so they could prove that she has a history of misrepresenting herself? So you're never going to be able to get a very successful case out of that when your only witness can be, you know, can be basically impeached. 
So that's, that's the prosecution problem there. But as justice would have it, Suge goes to jail on another murder. He's essentially gonna spend his life in prison. Poochie's dead, Orlando Anderson's dead. All the people in the white Cadillac are dead. You know, the only last ones remaining is, is Suge Knight and, and Keefe D. And yeah. neither, of them, neither of them are in good places in life. Yeah. Uh, so you can look at this whole thing as like a failure of the justice system, which to some degree it was, or you can look at it as, hey, divine justice took over and, uh, you know, karma caught up with just about everybody involved. Yeah. So um, obviously after you've investigated and you've retired, was that when you decided to bring the book out? Because obviously you've got, you're the author of Murder Rap, which is a fantastic book. Thanks. Yeah. So I was in 2009, 10, I decided that I'd had my 25 year career. I was, I was really at that point in time, just. I wasn't finding law, I wasn't finding police work as exciting and exhilarating and challenging anymore. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm still young. Maybe I'll just retire, get my pension. And I felt this responsibility to share what we knew with all of the fans of Biggie and Tupac and their families, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I, if I don't say something, who, who knows how long it'll be before this information is ever revealed. Yeah. Public deserves to know. So I felt that responsibility to go out and share what we figured, you know, share what we discovered. And so I wrote a book. The book turned into a documentary and then the documentary led to a Netflix series. So it kind of just snowballed, and which is great because we got all the information out on different platforms now for the world to know. And then they yeah. can decide for themselves what they want to believe. So did you expect the book to blow up as big as it did? Like, how was it received? So like the fans and the family members of who were involved. Yeah, it was really, really well received. I, um, I mean, I sold, I, you know, I still get checks. I just, I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm, I'm really surprised. It just continues to have enduring legs. Um, so it was really well received because it makes sense. Hmm. You know, it's just, it's relatively simple and it makes sense. And I think people have been yearning for something to make sense. And so I'm, I'm glad that we were able to do that, to provide some facts and some details and the evidence that really gives a clear picture of what happened. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why I think it was really successful um, in different platforms, whether it was documentary space, book space, or the entertain, you know, the um, series space. Yeah. So it, I'm really proud of it all. I'm happy that I've made that decision. And to this day, we continue to pursue at least educating the public um, as to what we know and what we also know is untrue, which we are constantly yeah. fighting against those false narratives that are out there. So what was it like when someone approached you and said, we, we, we love your book and we're going to turn it into a documentary? What was it like getting to film the documentary? The documentary was really cool because it was, it was it was not a huge budget documentary, but the guy who did it, Mike Dorsey, the filmmaker, did a great job on a very limited budget. And it was great to learn how lighting and all this stuff that takes place during a production. Now, I had no, you know, I had no, you know, experience with that. So it was great to be able to see how this stuff works, how editing works and how you patch together, um, you know, a visual narrative. So it was, I, I loved that. And then, of course, the series was like that on steroids. 
because it's now you've got a big budget production with professional actors and really accomplished directors. And now it just took that little documentary experience and blew it up into like, wow, major production. This is really, really interesting to watch and to learn about. Yeah. So with the documentary, was it this really, is it really close to the book, how you wanted to do? Do you get a lot of input with the documentary or is it you, you turned up and you filmed your, your little talk bits and then obviously you went away? No, I worked hand in hand with Mike. We worked, you know, uh, shoulder to shoulder the whole time because I wanted to make sure it was historically accurate and that the investigative material that he needed was available. And so we worked hand in hand on almost all of it. He was obviously steering the boat. And I was just co-piloting, um, but he, uh, it, it, it's very, very accurate. In fact, I think that the documentary is better than the book yeah. because when you can see and hear, instead of just read, you are able to kind of appreciate the information, um, you know, from different types of, you know, different types of perspectives. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I'm, I'm dyslexic, so reading to me is quite challenging. So when I watched the documentary to see the visual side of it, like, cause obviously you show like the shooting parts and you can put faces to the names. I think the documentary side of it was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. I think so too. I think Mike did a great job. So then um, how was it then getting it turned into a, a TV show? I mean, that's an even bigger step of a documentary. The fact that someone looks at what you, you're like, you're basically your product of a book and a documentary and decides to make it into a series. Like, how did that come about? So a writer, a television writer had approached me and said that he'd always been fascinated with the story and that he'd read the book and seen the documentary. And he says, Greg, I would love to see if we could get this into the scripted space. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, well, I'm happy to do that. Just do me one favor. Let's try to keep this as historically accurate as it can, because once you get into that scripted space, there's a whole lot of creative license taken and you can kind of lose authenticity. Yeah. Uh, if you watch City of Lies, which is this movie out right now, talking about the Russell Poole theory of what happened to Biggie, that is 90% fictional. Like oh, okay. people don't know. Yeah, people don't know better because they don't know the truth behind most of what's being presented. But it's about 90% fictional. And you have to ask yourself at some point in time, well, if there's so much fictional information in this movie, is it really based on a true story? Or is it is it just a fictionalized version of somebody's um, you know, uh, understanding of, uh, of a particular event. Yeah. So we, my thing was with the creator, I was like, let's try to keep this as historically accurate as possible. And his response was like, absolutely. That's what I want to do. We did take a couple of creative licenses in there. Like there was a scene where I say something about, oh, I'm eating sunflower seeds and, you know, that's the way I'm curbing my desire to smoke. Well, I, I was never a smoker. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. So yeah. they're just throwing these little things in there. And they had my son playing baseball instead of football. My son's never played baseball, but it's yeah. easier to shoot a scene with a kid playing baseball than it is to, you know, a kid playing football. With oh, yeah. So those little things that production wise, they, they took creative license on. But as far as what happened in the investigation and the information that was gleaned from the investigation, they were really spot on and kept all of that. Um, as true to history as they possibly could and still have an entertaining show. Because hmm. um, there is a, obviously a Biggie film and a Tupac film out there. But what I liked about the series was that you really 
obviously stressed about their friendship because in the films you don't see that but in your series you really show that they were really good friends were they that good friends in real life yeah i remember talking to valetta and she's like yeah tupac used to come over and spend the night you know him and chris were really really close um so and and i think people that knew both of them would say the same thing they were at one point in time very very close and tupac was really trying to help christopher develop himself into his rap persona and into you know the rap music industry so i think that that's one of the great tragedies of this whole thing is that two guys with so much talent and promise and two friends who were very close was all disrupted by egos and misunderstanding and violence and that that's the real tragedy is that nobody was there to intervene and prevent all this from happening yeah so how do, how do you feel your character come across in this series were you happy with how it turned out i i really was i mean obviously having somebody like josh demel portray you and not only is he uh just a genuinely good human being like he's he, there's nothing pretentious about him there's just he, he was just a great guy to be around and uh, i think he did a pretty good job of portraying the, the fictional version of me and yeah. you know, so I was really happy. I was happy with everybody in the show. Like everybody did a really great job. Was there any times you were on set when obviously they were filming it that really stood out for you that you remember quite well? Well, uh, you know, during these, these things, watching actors work and how hard they try to get their scenes right and how frustrated they are when they're having an off day or something like that. And you start to develop, you know, a, an appreciation for how talented some some actors are, and uh, so that was that was interesting to watch how serious that they take their craft, and then watching the director and trying to figure out like what's he doing here, what how is this all going to work, and then you see that he has this great vision, and you start to really appreciate how big of a responsibility a director has, yeah, you know, how how much they are dealing with all at the same time and having to rely on all these little aspects like lighting and camera work and sound and, and filtering all this stuff. Like it's a huge undertaking. I, I really learned to appreciate how much effort goes into putting a, a quality production together. Yeah. So what would be, did you get to see any of the action scenes or any of the, the, the club scenes being shot? Were you there for all of it? Yeah, I was there for all of it. I, I, I tried to attend every, every day if I could. Um, yeah, so I was there the night we shot at the Peterson Auto Museum. And, uh, and I was there, you know, during most of the filming. I think I was probably there for 75 to 80% of the filming. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. so I, I wanted to be there in case, I mean, that was my whole deal was that I had to make myself available so that they had... Uh, a resource available to like Greg is what happened here is this right is this incorrect what do you think so it was great to have to avail myself so that they could get the, an the the answers to the questions that they had yeah was there any moments where you just sort of like you, you had to really recorrect them in the right direction or you just thought you know, I'm just gonna let them run with this idea no there were there were oftentimes where we would sit down and have discussions about you know, how this would actually happen within the walls of the LAPD. What would this really look like? And so like they recreated the set 
of uh, the robbery homicide division almost to the T. I mean, we had photographs yeah. of the actual robbery homicide division and they re recreated it almost perfectly. And then, you know, little dynamics of how cops interact and how much, you know, sarcasm we employ in our daily lives with one another. They really tried to capture that. And that was just based on them being able to talk to um, myself and another technical consultant um, from the LAPD um, because we wanted to create the environment that these guys that, that I worked in and, and that Russell Poole worked in um, as accurately as possible. So it was, it was really, really cool. So what was it like when you woke up one morning to discover it was Netflix number one show for about, it's about for four weeks in the UK it was. <laughs> well, so keep in mind, like first the USA network had it for a year. So it was on USA and then Netflix had bought the rights and Netflix also invested a lot of money into the production with the understanding that after this grace period of USA channel having it, they would then be able to put it on their platform. So it was great because it brought in all this extra revenue and we knew it was going to get more exposure. That was great. But then when it came on to Netflix and I saw that it was trending and doing really well, I mean, how can you not just be proud and happy that all that yeah. work that went into it is paying off? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw it come up, it was being advertised on Netflix. It was straight on my reminder. Then as soon as it was on, I was, that was it. I was on it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was really, it was great. I stayed in, I still take, you know, you know, I still will text with um, different people that I met on the set and built some lifelong relationships as a result of all that. So that's also the added benefit of it is you form new friends and yeah. uh, and you carry them into your, you know, you carry them along with you. So moving away from Tupac and Biggie and everything a bit, is there any other high-profile cases that you've done? Uh, before I got involved in the Biggie and Tupac case, I was on this other massive federal investigation of a guy in Los Angeles who was, uh, who was being looked at for racketeering, which is, um, it's a, we call it RICO. It's, it's a governmental approach to a very comprehensive investigation um, racketeering influence, corrupt organization. That's what RICO stands for. And, and I was this massive, massive case. We went to federal court, and there was all kinds of different issues. And it was a real challenge of a case. And uh, that was one of the most gratifying and disappointing cases of my career. We put as much time and effort into that as we did into Tupac and Biggie's murders, a three-year investigation. Um, that uh, it's a bittersweet story, really. Yeah. But yeah, but the, the, those were the two big cases I worked during my professional career. Um, but, but, you know, throughout my police career, there was always these different little things. I remember pulling over Tory Spelling one day, and <laughs> <laughs> that was a very interesting car stop. And, you know, I had encounters with the Night Stalker when I was working at the jail. And, and oh, really? My own yeah. So throughout your, because you're 25 years, you're going to have all these kind of different highlights of your career. Every cop should have some. Yeah. Um, especially if you work in an environment like Los Angeles, uh, you're going to have some really, really great stories. Um, but as far as cases go, the Tupac and Biggie and then the George Torres case were the ones that I put in all my blood, sweat and tears into. Hmm. So what was the Night Stalker? 
his name was Risk. Uh, there's actually a, a Netflix series. It's very, very, very well done called The Night Stalker. Mm. And it's about this guy named Richard Ramirez, who was terrorizing Southern California. He was a home invasion murderer. And for years back in the 80s, he was going around and sneaking into people's houses and killing them. And it took a long time to identify him and it took a long time to catch him. Um, so he was actually a, incarcerated at the jail I was working at in Orange County. And he mm. was in our, he was in one of our cell blocks. Yeah. And uh, I think he's, has he already been put to death? Richard Ramirez, he may have already been executed. I think he has been put to death. Okay, so yeah. really, really good series on Netflix right now that details uh, the investigative work, the really great investigative work that went into his capture and identification. He actually got caught by citizens who had seen flyers of this guy wanted bulletins. And uh, yeah. they, they, you know, he was in East Los Angeles and people recognized him on the street. And they chased him down and beat the hell out of him. And the cops basically saved him from being beaten to death by citizens who captured him it's a, it's a really interesting story <laughs> yeah and that's crazy like um, so obviously obviously now you're re retired in that i mean are you still investigating or are you just you taking it easy no I'm, I'm one of those guys that's just wired to do things and so after i retired i opened up my own private investigations company and i stay really busy with that um it's it's been very it's been a very blessed um, endeavor. Uh, but I'm also always involved in different types of um, production efforts. Yeah. I'm working on a couple different documentaries right now. I'm working on a podcast. I do a lot of these interviews. And then, uh, you know, I, I wrote a script for a non, um, a, uh, a fictional series called The Interpreter. I got into, so I'm, I'm just taking a shotgun approach to life. Yeah. Because that's, that's when I feel most alive. When I have a lot going on and uh you know some of them work out and some of them don't but it's all part of just the journey yeah so wh where's your podcast going to be is it going to be a youtube one or are you going to be on a streaming site so we're i was going to do this podcast um well i am doing this podcast but it's a little bit delayed because there's some production companies that are interested in doing a documentary at the same time as the podcast so we're just kind of ironing out all those those issues and figuring out how to collaborate. Um, but that's what I really want to do. I want to be able to sit at yeah. home in my own podcast studio and, yeah. and, and, and tell stories. <laughs> so that's, that's really on the top of my list, but it's not as easy as just, you know, you, you do this, you, you understand what's involved in the time and energy and effort of putting together these things. Um, so I'm just trying to get my ducks all lined up. Yeah. In, order to, in order to do that because we're doing a really interesting story in my opinion yeah, I, mean, it, I mean obviously I, I started doing this during the first lockdown I didn't realize how much time and effort goes into it it's a real mm -hmm. obviously you've got to edit things and all sorts comes into play it's yeah it's, it's a bit of a different world now <laughs> yeah it really it, it is and uh, all the technical stuff I'm having to learn from scratch I don't come from uh, you know I'm, I'm an old dude you know I, you know I still have trouble texting <laughs> 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 you know all the all the stuff that has to do with um the technical aspects of it all um i either have to really rely on other people or you know go through the trouble of trying to learn it myself and, hmm. you know I, i'm just learning how to do audio you know editing so it's 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 
it's interesting, but we'll see where it all goes. So, so what kind of documentaries are you, the future ones that are coming up, what, what are they about? Well, I, we're doing one on this um, police officer named Christopher Dornan. Back in 2013, Christopher Dornan was an African-American, um, um, uh, well, I don't want to say he was a police officer at the time. In 2013, when he went on a shooting spree, he had been separated from the LAPD for years. But prior to that, when he was a rookie officer, he had gotten fired from the LAPD and he felt that the firing was unjust. He felt that it was racially motivated. He tried every avenue to try to get his job back. And the courts just kept saying, no, it was a justified termination. Uh, they had good reason, good cause to fire you. He didn't think so. And so in 2013, when he realized he's never going to get the job back that he wanted, and he was a decorated uh, military officer um, prior to being on the LAPD, and he decided to go on a shooting rampage. And he took uh, you know, his military rifles and went about the streets of Southern California executing people. And he wrote this long manifesto and had it published about all the ills of society and all the ills of the LAPD and all the people that he felt betrayed him or let him down and targeted those people. And so there was this 10 day manhunt for him in Southern California where he's going around executing cops and citizens. And wow. <laughs> yeah, they finally track him down to the mountains out here in Southern California in San Bernardino County. And he takes refuge in a abandoned cabin and uh, he shoots a police officer in the head there. And then the SWAT teams come in. He's basically, um, again, taking refuge in a cabin. It ultimately, the cabin lights on fire. He goes down into the basement of the cabin to try to get underneath the, you know, the, uh, the heat and smoke and the fire. And once he knows that all hope is lost, he puts his gun to his head and kills himself. Yeah. But it's a really fascinating story about his perception of, of uh, racial injustice and being discriminated against versus the other side of the story, which I think illustrates um, how um, mental health, narcissism, um, other things play into this equation, this deadly equation uh, where a whole bunch of innocent people were killed uh, by a guy who just didn't think the system was fair. Yeah. And uh, I think it's very timely because of all the anti-police rhetoric that's going on in our society now, uh, systemic racism uh, claims and issues. So I think it's a really interesting story because you can look at it from different angles and, 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 see, and see whether or not we've really come very far. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite a big story, isn't it, to cover? Yeah. yeah, it's a really, really interesting story. And so we're hoping to tell it and tell it in different formats, but also to tell it comprehensively. Uh, yeah. Unlike just a one-off podcast, you know, this would be a minimum of a 10-episode type of series. Hmm. So with your, with, with your podcast, what kind of guests will you be getting on it? Well, we'd be talking, um, uh, we would have... I didn't work the case, so I'm not a subject matter expert on the case, and I don't want to pretend to be, but I can't, but I've, uh, I've collaborated with the homicide investigator that oversaw the case, and he has all of the personal experience and insight and, and, and material that we would build the 
the podcast and the documentary on. So I aligned myself with somebody who can tell us from firsthand perspective what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and that type of thing. And then we yeah. would have, you know, we would have different witnesses, uh, other police officers, potentially victim family members, everybody telling the story about how this incident, how this event impacted their life and, uh, and, and honoring the, honoring the memories of those that were slain. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could do this with a lot of people then there's, there's loads of people you could get on them, this podcast. It'd be, it'd right. be crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. And, um, that's like I said, that's on the top of my list of what to do in the, in the days ahead. Yeah. Would you get um, Christopher's mum on there at all? Um, if uh, Christopher Wallace's? Yeah. His mom? Well, obviously her, her, she's not in any way connected to this podcast with Christopher Dorner. Oh, okay. Right. Different, different event, different things. So I don't know that she would be relevant for that, but boy, I, I, mean, I would, I would entertain having Valletta Wallace um, in my home or on my podcast, anything. I, I, I really respect and appreciate the woman and feel for her because um, I don't know that she will ever be satisfied with the, the events, not the events surrounding her son's murder, but I don't think that she's ever going to get the peace and, 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 and um, solace that will come with knowing definitively what happened to her son. So yeah. I think that's sad. I mean, obviously you said you've just got back home. So obviously your, your investigating jobs, you get to travel a lot with this. Oh yeah. I, like I said, I'm, I'm gone more than I'm home. So I, I'm always, whether it's my private investigations, you know, responsibilities or flying to New York to do a podcast or, you know, going to Florida to, to, you know, do, I'm just all over the place. It seems like, and I like it, but I'm also, um, you know, as I get older, it's like, <laughs> you, need a, you need a, you need a full night's sleep. I can't run the way I used to run. And um, I've got to kind of start doing better time management for my own life. Cause I don't know how healthy it is to, to be on the go all the time. And, mm. and like you, like, you know, you know, when you're on the go, you're, you're not eating and, you know, eating as healthy as you should. And I have a tendency, I, you know, I love to go to pubs. I love to share beers with people. And so that becomes a, a bit of a preoccupation. It's not very healthy. So, you know, but it's fun. You know, try to get everything out of life that I can. Yeah. Well, if you're over, over in the UK at all, let me know and I'll come have a beer with you. I'm always up for a beer. I, I yeah, never... where, where are you at? Um, I'm near Gatwick Airport. So I'm just outside of London. Okay. I'm probably, I'm probably like an hour's drive into London. So, yeah, I can travel anywhere in the UK, really doesn't bother me <laughs> well i absolutely plan on being back over there hopefully the board you know hopefully this whole covid thing's on its tail end and we can start opening up uh you know uh, tourism again and, and travel again because I, I definitely would come back over there and, and love to have a beer with you and, and meet you in person yeah it'd be awesome like be cool to meet yeah. you in person it's, it's crazy how you can talk to someone over the phone like this and then years to come or whenever you can actually meet them in person like it still fascinates me we can video time people <laughs> i know 
I know the world's definitely gotten smaller, you know, how we're able to meet and communicate uh, through these, you know, through these avenues with uh, otherwise, you know, what's, you know, without this, where would we be? Just phone calls, phone calls yeah. are kind of annoying to me. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be me phoning you just trying to hold a microphone on one end of the phone. <laughs> right. Exactly. It properly. <laughs> right. And you miss so much, you know, and that's one of the things in communication, those little, you know, the, uh, you know, being able to watch somebody's facial expression and, and, you know, you, you don't misinterpret things as much as you would just by hearing a voice or you get to see all the, 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 the little things that help you to better understand what's being said. And that way you don't misinterpret things. Yeah. You know? So obviously, Greg, we, we've taken up an hour of your time today. And obviously, I, I appreciate you so much being on our show. It's been wonderful talking to you. I, obviously, I just want to say a big thank you for being on our show today hey it's been my pleasure ben i appreciate you man thanks for working with me on the time differences and uh yeah sorry about sorry about getting hold of you so early (laughs) yeah it's all good um can i plug something real quick yeah yeah plug whatever you want it go for it yeah so just real quick um for those of people that really if you have your audience if they are interested in or the the story of biggie and tupac there's a guy, this Mike Dorsey guy who made the documentary, he's doing this whole entire series called The Deep Dive on YouTube. And so if, if you have questions or confusion about a lot of the different issues that have surrounded Christopher's investigation and murder, Mike Dorsey is doing this incredible series on YouTube where he's doing very interesting um, um exposures of a lot of the misunderstandings in the case. So for those of your fans and listeners that are interested in that, check out Deep Dive on YouTube by Mike Dorsey. You're going to learn a whole bunch of stuff that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Well, that's awesome. I'll make sure I put a link to that and on the screen as well so we can get people onto cool. that for you. And yeah, and everyone, make sure you go out and buy the book as well, Murder Rap. I, <laughs> when you buy the book in the UK... Uh, Amazon sends me, you know, I get these little checks in the mail from book sales and it's always in, um, in English, uh, pounds. Oh, you got right? to it. And so I go to the bank and the lady at the, my clerk's like, Oh no, here we go. They've got to go and convert it. <laughs> so it's just the way it works. But I'm always, I just, I was like, all right, I'm just going to take these checks and hold them for a while so that I can just do them all at once instead of uh, going in there and having uh, to bother the, the clerk with <laughs> converting it to US dollars. That's brilliant. I like that. Yeah. Let's say we should just start doing everything in crypto, right? Make it easy. It's, it's getting that way. I mean, there's a lot of places now in the UK that are not taking money. So <laughs> they're just doing everything on card and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're 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 going in that direction. So it seems. Awesome. Well, well, thanks. Thank you very much, Greg, and I really appreciate your time. And it's been an honor having you on. All right, man. I tell you, I look forward to meeting you one day, buddy. And I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, we we'll definitely get that beer. Okay, sounds good, buddy. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. See ya. Oh, uh, and if you don't know, now you know. 